The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Saturday, December the 3rd, and you're very welcome to a special edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is special because today the Irish Times publishes the first part of an Ipsos opinion poll, which in turn forms part of a major new research project into North-South relations and political views on the future of the island of Ireland for the Irish Times and for the ARINS project. ARINS stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy and the Keogh-Nocton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame. To have a look at what the research said, I am joined by three people who've been on this podcast before, although I believe they've never been on it at the same time. Brendan O'Leary is Lauder Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and Honorary Professor of Political Science at Queen's University. He's worked for decades on conflict resolution in Ireland and elsewhere, and he is the author of 30 books, including most recently Making Sense of a United Ireland, which he discussed with us a few months back. Also here are our political editor, Pat Leahy, and our acting features editor, Mary Menehan, who co-presented the Irish Times podcast series Borderlines earlier this year with our our Northern editor, Freya McClements. You're all very welcome, Mary. I'm going to go to you first, if you don't mind, because this is our lead story this morning and we've got extensive coverage with tons of data throughout the paper. What are the main points in your view? Okay, Hugh, well, the top line is that Northern Ireland would vote decisively against a united Ireland if there was a border poll. So it's not quite no, nay, never. It's a bit more nuanced than that. Uh, if you have your Irish Times to hand, we can talk you through it. And we can point to an Ipsos opinion poll, which is an element of this, which is it's a major new research project into North-South relations and political views on the future of the island. So, you know, we have hard evidence for this and we hope listeners to the podcast and indeed readers of our material will accept that the questions were asked in as neutral a manner as possible by professional pollsters with academic partners you have Brandon here, who you've introduced, and also his colleague, John Gary from Queen's, who's Professor of Political Behaviour and Director of the Democracy Unit in Queen's. So twin opinion polls have been carried out north and south of the border in recent months. What do they show? They show that there's a large majority against Irish unity in Northern Ireland, with almost twice as many voters who expressed a preference, we should say that, preferring to remain in the United Kingdom. Situation quite different in the Republic, according to the polls. There's a majority of over four to one in favour of unity. And that's according to a simultaneous and identical poll. Uh, Majorities in both jurisdictions think that referendums on the unity question should be held. So people want to be asked the question. Uh, And voters in the Republic are more likely to favour a vote in the next five years, while the majority of voters in the North want a a border poll in the next 10 years. So that's a a brief synopsis, just a little teaser, really, of all the material that you can find. So to summarise, Brandon, I mean, you've been looking at this in great detail. And as we say, there is more to come over the next uh, next week or 10 days and indeed into January, I believe. But... If I were summarising it, I'd say, uh, unsurprisingly to my eye, there's a, there's a very strong majority in favour of unification in the current independent state of Ireland. 
there's a surprisingly large majority against reunification as it stands right now in the north of Ireland. But there is a willingness to have a referendum within uh, a kind of a viable time frame. I think that's broadly accurate, Hugh and Mary. I'd make one very important qualification. It is extremely surprising anywhere in the world to find uh, up to a quarter of the population undecided as to which sovereign state they'd like to belong. And that's the case in this poll in the north. Yes, there's a two-to-one majority in favor of maintaining the union, but the overall level of support is just around 50%. And uh, I think roughly a quarter of the uh, electorate are undecided on the question. And perhaps that is the most interesting phenomenon, that there are so many uh, undecideds and persuadables. And one of the things we do in our survey and one of the things that makes it unique, north and south, is that we have investigated in focus groups, uh, in particular the people whom we call the undecideds, the persuadables, the neither nors. And uh, I think readers will find uh, our reflections on what they have to say of interest. So my, my qualification to the general story is vigorous support uh, for unity in the South, um, uh, vigorous support for the Union in the North, but qualified by the extraordinarily large numbers of don't knows. And indeed, a remarkable number, I think it's somewhere in the region of uh, one in 10 who wouldn't vote on the question, um, which is, again, remarkable. We'll come back to Brendan's persuadables in a moment, Pat. But first of all, Another thing that strikes me about the numbers north of the border, or the proportions really, I should say, is that this is broken down by the usual demographics, which everybody is familiar with in in Northern Ireland. And going by these numbers, um, Protestants are more unionist than Catholics are nationalist, I suppose would be the simple way to put it. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that kind of jumps out at me from these findings. And I suppose, you know, we should say that over the coming days we'll be publishing new findings and delving into these findings in a more in-depth level and many of the questions and the reports from the focus groups that are to come will probe a lot of the things more deeply that we were talking about today. But once you get into those breakdowns and, and you can see really that, you know, in a way it's not surprising that the North is against uh, unity and the South is for unity. I agree with Brendan. It is that the support for a poll is quite striking. But, you know, it's it's very much clear that there's, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on below the surface in Northern Ireland. In, in some respects, Northern Ireland is, is a society that is even more in flux than our own one. And there's a, a very definite weakening of the perennially assumed identification between political choice and religious background. And you know, while it's certainly true there's an overwhelming majority of people who describe themselves as being from a Protestant background who say they would vote against a United Ireland to remain uh, as part of the United Kingdom, there's a hefty proportion of those describe themselves as don't knows. And commensurately on the other side, amongst voters who describe themselves as being from a Catholic background, There's just a bare majority of all of those voters, just over half, 54%, say that they would vote for a united Ireland. But a fifth of them, over a fifth of them, 21%, say they would vote to stay in the United Kingdom, while, as Brendan points out, a whopping number of don't knows here uh, as well, 
22% of them, over over a fifth. So, you know, I think it's clear, and that, that, that I suppose is then before you look at, at the neithers or nars or the others, as we call them in this, again, high proportion of don't knows, majority, but not a massive one in favour of staying in the United Kingdom. And I, I think to summarise all that, while it's very clear that what this poll is saying is not now or in the near future, maybe, about uh, a united Ireland. And certainly, you know, the the sort of suggestions that you've heard from many people who are quite legitimately campaigning uh, in, in that direction, that it is an inevitability within a decade, is certainly not borne out by these numbers today. But what the numbers are saying, are, or rather what the numbers are not saying, is it could never happen. In fact, the more you delve into them, the more you see that there is space in the North and also in the South in a different way, I guess, for a conversation uh, about Irish unity. Mary, I'm going to make a, a double error here in that I'm both going to confront some of this hard data with my own anecdotal gut instinct and also as an anecdotal gut instinct pertaining to life in Northern Ireland. And I'm going to ask you, who actually grew up there, uh, whether I'm right. What I would say is I'm not entirely surprised that um, uh, I suppose tribal allegiance uh, as represented in religious origin or even adherence to a particular political party doesn't map directly to what people might like to see the constitutional position of Northern Ireland be in the future. Is that fair enough? Yeah, I think it is fair. I mean, there's some findings of this poll that you might say were a little bit predictable. And uh, looking at the Northern poll, strongest opposition to unity was, uh, to United Ireland, that is, was among those of a Protestant background. You have 78% saying they would vote for Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom. And those of a Catholic background were most in favour of unity. Uh, Although it is interesting to break those figures down. And you have just over half, 54% of all Catholic respondents saying they would vote in favour with 21% against and 22% saying they didn't know. So, you know, those are interesting. There's there's also some kind of counterintuitive findings in, in the poll, which are, are, are really interesting. And as Brandon has said, the, the don't knows is very, very interesting indeed. And it's also fascinating that the highest percentage of don't knows was among the others in inverted commas and that's those who don't identify as being either from a Protestant or a Catholic background and in that case almost a third uh, 31% said they were undecided how to vote in the event of a referendum uh, so I suppose those are those people are the persuadables if you like they're what are sometimes termed maybe floating voters and as Brandon has said to what gives this polling a human face is the uh, the, the really interesting focus group material and uh, Brandon and his colleague John have really uh, dug into this and uh, there's some really really interesting findings and in, and some really fascinating quotes people's fears people's dreams people's aspirations one of the findings that John and Brandon uh, discovered was that many participants north and south questioned whether the south could afford the north uh, I suppose that's that's not a new argument and particularly the cost of health care and that is something that's very 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 dominant in people's minds. So uh, to answer you, Hugh, I, I think what you what you are saying is fair. And I think what's really interesting about uh, what we're showing today is that there's some fairly predictable findings, but also some uh, really interesting and kind of counterintuitive findings. Yeah, Brendan Murray's right. The focus group findings and indeed the quotes, the illustrative quotes are 
are really very interesting indeed in that they, they reveal people's concerns. One of the things that, that strikes me about the Persuadables, though, is that, uh, and as Mary Murray touched on that here, is they, they disproportionately, not, not surprisingly, come from the people who define as political others rather than to a unionist or a nationalist position. And it seems to me, um, as embodied, for example, in the position of the Alliance Party, which is the party that many of those people vote for, that it's actually a political statement in Northern Ireland to say, I don't or or can't or won't answer that question right now. And I wonder, does that does that feed into that response? Does it perhaps reflect some of that rather than just people saying, I just can't think about it or haven't made up my mind? Well, the, the Alliance Party for some time has been formally neutral on the question of the Union or uh, Irish unification. And I think one way of interpreting the figures is to say if they weren't, they would fall apart um, because they bridge a very interesting coalition, those who are uh, mildly pro the Union, those who are mildly pro unification under certain circumstances, and those who genuinely don't know. So the alliance bloc and those uh, smaller micro parties that resemble the alliance would be the ones that were most divided, um, uh, would be the ones that became most divided if there were to be referendums. If I could pick up um, on what's been said so far, um, I would like to emphasize that it's not surprising that the status quo is favored in the North. That's the norm in any kind of referendum on a major question, that the status quo has an advantage because it's lived and it's, and it's experienced. What we find is that um, Protestant working class males are the most intensely committed to the union. And uh, Protestants in general are the most committed to the union, and they're more committed than Catholics are to unification. So those who uh, favour Irish unification have to focus their uh, strategies over the next decade or beyond on um, reducing the anxieties and fears, particularly among uh, Protestant working class males. But they also have to have successful programs for looking at the undecideds, the others, the, the neither nors. I would like to pay tribute to some of my colleagues in Aaron's, namely Jennifer uh, Todd, uh, Joanne McAvoy and Dawn Walsh, who helped uh, John Gary and I in the design of the um, the focus groups. And as, as you've suggested, some of the findings are extraordinarily interesting. So Pat, then, in relation to all of that, and to that point about there's, a, there's an inbuilt advantage, I suppose one could say, politically to the status quo when you confront people with the prospect of, 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 of quite radical constitutional change. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on referendums around the world in the way that, that Brendan is, so I'm, I'm more familiar with the ones that are relatively close to home. So, you know, in some ways, the, the clearest parallel that's available to us the, and closest parallel is the Scottish referendum, the independence referendum, which was defeated by 10 percentage points um, about, about seven years ago. Um, so that was a relatively close, much closer than the, this opinion poll is showing at the moment. So that was uh, the result of the political success of the Scottish Nationalist Party in the decade preceding it. And it had some prospect of succeeding in, even though it was fairly, you know, fairly clearly defeated uh, in the end. I suppose the, que- the question arising out of that is there really is no prospect or no argument for the proposition that there should be a referendum in, within the next five years on the basis of these numbers, is it? Well, apart from the fact that lots of people want it, and a majority in both 
places favour uh, a referendum within 10 years. And I think this is one of the interesting things about it, that in a way it sets up the public view of people both in, in the North and the South against the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement because the Good Friday Agreement says that the British Secretary of State, and it is his or her responsibility to call a border poll in the North, should only do that where it appears likely to him or her that it will pass. Now, it's very clear from these numbers that there is very little likelihood of a referendum passing right now or certainly within uh, within the short term. At the same time, people in the North and uh, and in the South are very clear that they, they want to vote. And it may well be, and it seems to me, a, a, a reasonable conclusion that of the nearly 40% of people from a Protestant background who say that there should be a referendum, I think a proportion of those want a referendum while they're pretty sure they can win it. So on the one hand, you have the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, which says, well, look, there shouldn't be a referendum now. And on the other hand, you have uh, the clear will of the people that there there should be a referendum now. Just to go back to w- one of the points raised uh, earlier, that, yeah, I think it the outcome of the poll in the North, that the North would vote to stay as part of the United Kingdom, isn't surprising I don't know what Brendan thinks of this, but to me, the scale of it is surprising that it is a, you know, it's a very clear amongst those who express uh, a preference, it's uh, it's two to one against. And while I wasn't surprised at a finding that the North would reject unity, I was slightly surprised that it was so large. Brendan, what do you make of that? Two things. Uh, first of all, there's a, a long record on uh, surveys as opposed to um, internet polling, that the surveys uh, tend to bring in people who typically don't vote and therefore tend to show a a higher magnitude of support for the union. So um, that's a kind of consistent result. And uh, support for the union is historically low when it's around 50% of those expressing an opinion. Uh, yes, it is higher than the, the support for those uh, who who want uh, Irish unification and by a factor of two to one. But I would go back again to the emphasizing the significant number of don't knows. For me, that means that the question is now um, negotiable. It's a question of cost benefit analysis. It's a question of campaigns and future campaign effects. It's interesting to John and myself that the way you pose the question about the referendum tends to shape the answer. So if people are being asked in general, do you think these uh, questions should be decided by referendum? They are in favour of that. But not all Protestants are in favour of that. Um, uh, Some uh, significant proportion of Protestants, nearly 50%, don't think there should be a referendum, period, when asked the, the general question. Um, But if you're asked, in general, the populations of the North and South think matters should be decided by referendum, but that doesn't necessarily predict how they'll vote in a referendum. So uh, going back to your point about the Scottish referendum, Hugh, I would emphasise that what happened in the Scottish referendum was truly remarkable. The campaign was a long one, and when it began, support for independence was roughly 27%. It went as high as 50% in uh, several polls before it uh, dropped back to 45% 
after an intervention by Gordon Brown. So that's proof, if we want proof, that campaigns actually matter. And that's why there's this interesting tension that Pat alluded to. The Secretary of State is obliged under the Good Friday Agreement to hold a referendum if, in his or her opinion, uh, there has been a shift in opinion uh, in favour of Irish unification. Now, that requires the relevant Secretary of State to predict campaign effects as well as to analyse what the current uh, state of opinion is. And that is not a social science that we can help him with or, or her with. Uh, campaign uh, campaigns really matter. And one of, one of the things I think Irish Times readers will enjoy picking over in the entrails of, of these surveys is the particular questions that might matter and particular influences that might matter in shaping the outcome of a referendum. So these are snapshot opinions. They, t they tell us what right now the public might think. They can't tell us uh, very exactly what might happen in the course of a referendum. But that's where our other questions might be useful for readers to think through what kind of uh, issues the pro-unification side would need to emphasize and what emphases the pro-union side would have to make in the event of a northern referendum. Before I go back to Mary, Brendan, can I ask you, when we last spoke in our last uh, conversation, I refer our listeners back to it, you talked about the, the possibility of a bad faith exercise by a British government, the current one or a future one, in plumping for an early referendum in the expectation of achieving a desired result, which would, I suppose, put the issue to bed for a decade or they, they might they might hope even more. And there is a sort of an undercurrent, isn't there, perhaps, among some of the responses in this that that, that some people, you know, some unionists might feel it's better to, to do this now than to wait for 10 years? Some might indeed um, have that view, uh, but I think their community would be divided on the question. And partly uh, they would be divided for the reason I just gave. They wouldn't be confident of campaign effects. Um, what will happen when it, the question is really on the agenda as opposed to uh, a speculative question? Uh, what will be the characteristics of the debate uh, that might follow? The other thing that I think inhibits the possibility of uh, a Machiavellian referendum being held with, without the support levels required by the Good Friday Agreement is uh, the, the straightforward um, consideration that uh, after seven years, another referendum can be held. So if the first referendum was closer than expected, that would inspire those who wanted uh, to have another one quite quickly. The terms of the Good Friday Agreement are unambiguous on this matter. The, uh, another referendum can be held in, uh, seven years later, no earlier than seven years later. And remarkably, there's no limit placed on that. You could have a referendum 14 years hence if uh, the conditions were met. So in this respect, Northern Ireland is strikingly different from Scotland, where the Scots stunningly have to negotiate whether or not they have a right to have a referendum on, on the question with a Westminster government, which is currently implacably opposed, whereas at least the population of Northern Ireland as a whole have a mechanism through which they can have their opinion tested. Barry, what's your sense of the movement, the, the direction of travel at the moment. There's a lot of talk and we've all seen, you know, and, you know, major events of one sort or another, interesting intellectual interventions. There is a sense of a, of a movement which is on the move towards putting reunification on the table in terms of really trashing out some of the, some of the issues, some of the concerns which were, which were raised in the focus groups you mentioned, you mentioned earlier. 
Is your sense that that's that that that, that there's change afoot in Northern Ireland around that 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 there's a real active change, or is it just one part of the community which is politically committed to that? Well, I suppose if you look at our poll today, it's a very decisive result in this poll from Northern Ireland, and you know it would mean a a real sea change in views north of the border would have to come about before the British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland would feel morally obliged to call uh, a border poll. Of course, it's been said before, the wording in the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement is is woolly and was perhaps left deliberately so around that contentious issue. I think, you know, as Brendan has intimated, uh, those who are advocating for Irish unity in the North, uh, I think they realise they have a job of work to do and they'd have to convince these persuadables, these undecideds, these floating voters that... Um, uh, reunification, I think, particularly within the EU, would bring great benefits to their society. And to answer your question, yes, there are certainly elements of Northern society that are are, are fired up uh, on this issue. Uh, I suppose the obvious example is uh, the Ireland's Future Group, and it's holding uh, various um, you know meetings around uh, the country. The question is whether or not this is the thing that people are are talking about around their breakfast table or their dinner table or whatever it is. And, you know, I think even Sinn Féin's Michelle O'Neill, and I know we all know where she stands on the issue without any question. You know, she has uh, conceded that that, you know, it's it's not the issue that is that is keeping people awake at night. Uh, but, you know, I think what is what is interesting here is you're, we have very much focused on the North, actually, and we probably should pull back a little bit uh, and look at what is being said about the Republic as well. But in both jurisdictions, despite the differing outcomes, you know, there are really strong majorities in both jurisdictions now in favour of holding referendums on the issue. So I find that interesting. I think people want to be asked. Um, I always get a little bit suspicious when I hear politicians saying things like, oh, the people don't want an election now, <laughs> uh, because I... I you know, elections, referendums don't take that much out of voters. They take an awful lot out of politicians and uh, sometimes they're very reluctant to go into them. So, you know, I, I think people have told us here that they, they would like to be asked over three quarters of voters, 70, 76% in the Republic are in favour of a border poll, poll uh, with a majority favouring a time scale of within five years and over half of Northern voters, 55% favour holding a referendum. And as we've said, they, they prefer a slightly longer time scale of 10 years. Uh, and, you know, I suppose what this has done and what we're trying to do is, is answer the question you've asked. In a sense, we've We've tried to take the pulse of the electorate, uh, both north and south. And, and maybe we should say a little bit about how we did that. Uh, you know, the, t- the two polls were carried out with a, a series of accompanying focus groups, which I think any of our, our, our readers and our listeners will agree really did enhance this research. And that was carried out uh, over among a thousand voters in both Northern Ireland and the Republic in August and September of this year. So it's really recent, it's really current. And how the interviews happened, that's also important when it comes to polling. They were conducted at people's homes on a face-to-face basis at sampling points across both jurisdictions. So that's just a little bit of background information for people that might be wondering how we went about it. And, uh, you know, I just think it's useful, not just for poll geeks like ourselves, but it's useful for anyone to know that. 
Pat, Mary's absolutely right that we've been focusing entirely on the north, and there are good, you know, there are good reasons for that. Not least the numbers, and not you know, not, not least the issues that are at stake. But there is a danger in just kind of you know making reference to to the numbers on the south and just moving on very quickly. I mean, there is more information to come in the week ahead, and we don't want to give too much of it away. But I think when it comes to political questions in the South, they're not so much about the the yes or the no to the primary question. The devil is in the detail of what kind of compromises might be required, what kind of compromises people might be willing to make. And that's the kind of stuff that we'll be looking at in future days. One of the things that we do ask in future days, uh, Hugh, is uh, what would voters need to know in order to make an informed decision on Irish unification? And there we ask them to emphasize their two most important issues. Now, question wording really matters here. If we gave them 10 uh, subjects on which uh, we asked them to tick whether they agreed it was important or not, we would have expected um, all of them to have been ticked by any moderately conscientious voter. But we just asked them to focus on two. And here we do get an interesting difference of emphasis between the North and the South. Uh, For the South, there's a clear preoccupation with the question of whether unification would be peaceful. Uh, That's their first and overriding uh, priority. They'd like to know that unification is going to be peaceful. Um, Their second most important emphasis is on the performance of the economy. In the North, the emphasis is different. It's not that uh, peace is considered unimportant, but it's it's in third place uh, ahead of uh, the importance of the uh, future economic performance of a United Ireland, and secondly, the question of the health sector, where there's a striking difference in in emphasis, and that's the kind of nuance that I think needs to be uh, brought out over the next decade, if we are to have referendums, if we are to have adequate planning by the government of Ireland, then it's these kinds of questions that need to be probed very carefully indeed. Because in the end, the if there are referendums, they, they don't, I don't think they're going to be decided on questions of flags and anthems. They will be decided for the undecided on questions to do with the economy, prospects of violence, uh, health service questions, um, and indeed political institutions and governmental arrangements. That's true, although we also do know that um, that in, in many cases, at least part of the electorate is willing to vote for on the basis of national identity or allegiance and to, and to, and to place that ahead of economics. So we, we, we saw that with Brexit. For right. Well, what we can say from these uh, surveys is it's incredibly improbable that the South would vote against unity on a general question in principle. Um, the North is clearly more divided and the, those who favour unification have a very significant task ahead of themselves to shift public opinion. And we, we, we can, on the basis of these um, joint surveys and focus groups, we can identify the kinds of questions that those who favour unification need to focus on. What do you make of this, the, the salience of the fear of, of, of violence uh, being greater in the South, Pat? Uh, I, I, mean, I ask partly because we've just had this big fuss over the last day or so about former Fine Gael leader Alan Dukes making comments about the nature of the society of people who live along the border. And in a way that shone a light perhaps on Southern attitudes. I think um, it's the difference between, you know, those those findings about the North and about the South is possibly related to uh, two things, maybe two sides of the same corn. 
People in the North uh, have some experience of political violence, a lot more experience, I guess, many of them of an older generation at least than, um, than people down here do. And perhaps that they view, or at least some of them view this process that may be ahead of us as part of the solution uh, to the problem of political violence in the North. But clearly they're more familiar with it and maybe therefore less scared uh, of it than people in the South appear to be. And the flip side of that coin, I suppose, is if you like the the kind of the success of partition in making two societies on uh, on the island, and you know, there's no question to my mind, but that the the southern state evolved in a very different way uh, in the north and has a very different experience and outlook on 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 many different things and in a way i've always thought it one of the great ironies of the provisional ira's campaign is that instead of undermining partition amongst many people in the south it kind of copper fastened it and it was very much a uh, an attitude grew up uh, in the south that they didn't want to import the problems of the north into the south and i think Possibly that is some of what is at play here. And it comes across, I think, in some of the focus group discussions that considered these and related issues, the extent to which people in the South view the North as different and perhaps for many of them, the more they think about it and the more they discuss it, the extent to which the the problems uh, you know, in the event of unification, the problems of the North and the problems of society and history in the North become all of our problems uh, on the island in a way that many people wouldn't currently perceive them to be. As a Northern woman living in the South, do you recognise that description, Mary? I suppose I do. And uh, like the others, I wasn't particularly surprised by uh, that element that you've raised. But, you know, I think what has been really interesting is what's come out of the focus groups when we have asked people uh, based in Northern Ireland what they'd need to know in advance of a vote. Uh, And, you know, if if you go through, just pick out a few examples. Uh, One of them was a a 61-year-old SDLP woman from Derry. and, And she has said, it would be difficult for me to work out how I would be affected until I know exactly what way, you know, the powers that be are thinking this could work. And then I'll start to consider it a bit more. And then uh, you've got a 73-year-old County Tyrone Protestant who would have voted for the Ulster Unionist Party recently, earlier this year, and he's undecided on how he would vote in a border poll. Like these are, it's fascinating to think that you're you're dealing with mature people who would have grown up with the troubles uh, and and that, that they're actually telling us now, and in this gentleman's case, that he's undecided. And what he has to say is that he doesn't think it's as simple as Catholics voting for United Ireland and Protestants not. He says it's become a much more open debate and there's a lot of questions which will arise now. And there's a whole lot of stuff, he says, and other issues that will need to be teased out over a long time before people even think about making a reasonable decision. So, you know, that is all very interesting. And as Brendan has said, this is not going to be decided on flags and anthems. This is going to be decided on on more bread and butter issues and the health service is a particularly big one. And, you know, I think we'll see uh, a lot of discussion in future about the contrast between, uh, you know, uh, the health service we have in the Republic, uh, the HSE and the NHS in the North. And, and probably what is really necessary 
it's maybe a bit of a bugbear of my own, but uh, a, an honest discussion about the health service in the North and the state of the health service in the North and the idea that the NHS is a, a beautiful aspiration that works superbly when it's funded properly uh, by central government, but, you know, isn't working superbly. <laughs> in fact, quite the opposite in many cases in Northern Ireland at present. So, you know, I think this is not just going to be decided on a whim. We think one health service is better than the other because it's not that simple. These are complicated things that have to be teased out. And, and I think if we actually listen to what are the participants of our focus groups ordinary people to use that awful phrase what they're actually telling us you know it's 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 very it's very interesting you have a younger man there from county tyrone he's 32 he's one of these people at, that he has voted for alliance uh he's undecided on the border poll and he doesn't identify as either a catholic or a protestant and again he's saying you know it's not as simple anymore as orange versus green and it's not inevitable. He's saying that people from a Catholic background would vote for United Ireland. And he's saying that there there are some Protestants that would vote for it if they were given the chance. But also there's Catholics that would vote against it. So just basically he's saying it's not as simple as one side or the other. I suppose it's the old traditional thing of... Uh, what was some, sometimes, you know, rudely and quite offensively uh, described as the sectarian headcount of voting in the North, that just our, our focus group people have showed us that Northern Ireland has changed utterly. The way people think, the way people are confident enough to express themselves to pollsters and in public has, has just changed utterly. I find that very heartening, although then I check myself and I wonder, am I being a bit Pollyanna-ish because I can recall me and other people saying that, that Northern Ireland was changing that way in the past and it, it didn't seem to turn out quite the way it did. But but Brendan, Mary's point, I think, about the about the health service is very well taken, that there are sort of tectonic plates under the surface of what we usually think of as being the parts of this issue. And I think health is health is both both symbolic and really important to people's lives. And you have not only the, you know, the the various travails of the of the health service in the republic but you know you also have a stripping down of the of the national health service and uh, a decade or more of austerity under conservative governments which might be undercutting what would have been one of the strongest arguments for remaining within the united kingdom in the past i agree i i agree with um everything that mary has just said and before i um probe health a little bit further, Hugh, I'd like to emphasize the extent to which it came across among our focus groups that they've been burned by the Brexit experience. So particularly in the North, where that's more uh, directly taking effect than in the South, they know that in the case of the Brexit referendum, there was not adequate preparation for the possibility of a leave vote and leave was undefined. And therefore, um, I think as a result of that, people really do want to have a good idea of what a united Ireland would be in comparison to the status quo. Which brings me to the health service. I think in any referendum, you're going to have a, a debate over idealized versions of what will happen in a united Ireland or with the maintenance of the union compared with uh, the hard practical realities. And if you're in favor of a united Ireland, I think you have to emphasize that Irish health outcomes in the south are better than the health outcomes in the north. That's reflected in life expectancy. 
It's reflected in numbers of excess deaths due to COVID, though there are complications there in relation to excess deaths. So if you're serious about campaigning for United Ireland, and you you might want to champion the existing uh, system in the South compared to that in the North, emphasize outcomes. Um, If you're in favor of the NHS and you're in favor of the union, you emphasize that it's it's a free health service. But what's interesting is that our focus group participants will often say things like, yes, it's um, it's free. And then they have a reflection, oh, we're free to join a queue to go. I think one, one of them mentions to go to Lithuania. So there's a, a recognition of the disparity between the actual promise of the of socialized medicine free at the point of use and the actual practice, as Mary says, that's related to, to funding. So this question is a big one. Will Will uh, a United Ireland be a case of converging health systems, some synthesis of the two arrangements that has not been tried before, or will it be extending the southern system north or attempting to make the northern system work better in a United Ireland? All of those questions uh, need to be addressed. The complexities related to Slauncher care and existing uh, provision in the north will be part of future debates and and need to be if there is to be a moderately rational outcome to the future referendums. And it goes without saying, Pat, that these are these are enormous questions for Irish society, both both north and south, and substantial questions which we'll be addressing over the next you know few days. We're going to be really focusing on this now over the next week or more, and we'll be covering it in more podcasts over the next while as well. Maybe just give us an idea. Of, of where this project is going now over the next while without without giving away any of the good stuff that people will have to go to. Yeah, to read. I mean, the, the questionnaires, when myself and Brendan and our colleague John Gary began talking about this in, I don't know, Brendan, the middle of last year, the first half of, uh, of last year, and the questionnaires are the product of um, much toing and froing between us. And they're pretty comprehensive. And as Mary was saying at the at the outset, they're designed to get as clear and comprehensive a picture supplemented then by the discussions in the focus groups as uh, as possible at this point in time. So we'll have more coverage on Monday. Much of that will be about the concerns. We've touched on some of it already in this discussion about the concerns that voters in the North and South would have about uh, United Ireland. What are the factors that might make them more likely or less likely uh, to vote for a United Ireland in each jurisdiction? What are the things that they would want to know? Um, On Tuesday, we will have a look at those people who are virulently opposed to United Ireland are the, the possibility, um, uh, uh, Brendan, in a brilliant piece that he has done, and we will, which uh, uh, which we will be publishing on Tuesday, talks about the necessity in a democracy for losers' consent and how that might play after uh, a referendum, whatever way it went. And our plan is to come back uh, to the subject then uh, next uh, Saturday, and uh, in the week beyond that, uh, there'll also be further coverage of aspects of the service that we haven't done so far. And in January, we will come back to look at the differences between and the similarities between the two societies. And I suppose we'll attempt some sort of a retrospective on the entire series. Once the uh, uh, once we've flogged it all to death, um, we intend to make the data publicly uh, available. And I should say as well that we hope to repeat. Uh, we hope to repeat the exercise 
in future years to track the changes, uh, if there are any, uh, that occur uh, during the um, during that, that that period. So lots and lots of, of more good stuff to come, which is obviously another good reason to subscribe to irishtimes.com in the, in the event that you haven't done so already. But uh, for the moment, we'll say thanks to, to Brendan O'Leary, Mary Minahan and Pat Leahy. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. We're going to be back with you very soon. But until then, thanks very much indeed for listening. 